Perfect. All right, so Dr. Irwin, man, uh, I was just telling you that I came across your name in a lot of my research endeavors and, and trying to figure out what's going on in today's world. Um, mm -hmm. You are, the, I'm looking at your profile right now, uh, Chair of Agricultural Marketing. You, you do a whole lot of research in agriculture and what else? Tell me a little bit of background of what else you do in your professorship. Sure, thanks. Well, I've been a professor for of agriculture economics for a long time. This is my 37th year as a uh, as, as an agriculture economics professor. So I've been at this a while. Um, my passion is uh, agricultural commodity markets. I teach courses uh, here, here at the University of Illinois um, on how to analyze prices in those markets. And I am very active in terms of public engagement about issues related to agricultural and food markets. Um, so, for example, I have I write very frequently on a, on a website called uh, Farm Doc Daily on these topics, um, and I'm very active on Twitter. I'm probably the most active agricultural economist anywhere on Twitter. Whether that's a good or a bad thing, I'm not sure. And uh, so that's that part of it. And then I do research, a lot of research. I write a lot of mm. academic. Uh, papers, um, just all sorts of topics related to agricultural commodity markets, um, topics like how accurate is the USDA at forecasting the size of the uh, annual U.S. corn crop in recent years, things like that. Hmm. Um, or I'm also very interested in uh, topics related to biofuels markets. So things like uh, the ethanol mandate, RIN markets, how all that works, um, interested in that. Um, so that's that's my university appointment. Uh, I also am still involved in my uh, family's farm back in Iowa where I grew up. So oh, that's awesome. So I have very practical grounding there. Is that kind of how what started this kind of career track for you? <clears throat> Well, that's that's really where it started. Uh, as I say, you know, in my bio, and it's really the truth. Uh, um, I grew up on a family farm in Iowa, and my father was very interested in the markets, and I kind of picked up that bug from him. Uh, I loved our trips to our local grain elevator to check the prices from Chicago every day. He followed the prices more than a lot of farmers, and I picked that up. Uh, when I was a, a young boy out in Iowa, and my fascination has never really wavered. I'm as interested in those topics as I was, uh, you know, over mm. 50 years ago. So if you don't want me asking, what was the main fascination and draw for this topic for you? Like, this isn't a typical uh, thing that the kid wants to say when they grow up. You know, I want, <laughs> I want to study, study agriculture and economics. Like, like, how did that become such an applicable thing in your life? Well, just a little bit of a backstory. It's interesting you ask that question because I've thought a lot about those kind of topics because I'm uh, I've written a book that's uh, part memoir and uh, the, the biggest part is trying to explain how commodity markets work to uh, and to the public. And so, oh, well, this, uh, this is perfect then. <laughs> yeah, and so that hopefully will be coming out in the next six months. What's it called? Uh, it's called um, Back to the Futures, uh, Crashing Dirt Bikes, Chasing Cows, and Understanding Commodity Futures Markets. That's amazing. I'm going to look that up now or once it publishes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not published yet. Yeah. So, um, you know, for me, it – well, I'll, I'll just – say this i grew up in a iowa farm family that was obsessed with two things uh the first were the agricultural markets you know if you're around farmers they are always talking in iowa about the price of corn soybeans hogs and cattle hmm. you go anywhere today that's still what farmers a lot of what they're talking about. The second thing they talk about is the weather. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so I just grew up in an environment where at the local coffee shop, 
uh, when we'd go to the elevator. You know, this was the topic uh, that farmers would talk about. And it also relates to um, the second thing that uh, my family was obsessed with, in particular my father, was automobile racing. And so we'd go to a lot of dirt tracks uh, with his uh, racing buddies and on these long car trips around Iowa, um, chasing around to dirt tracks. Uh, that's the main thing that they talk about was awesome. markets. Yeah. And so, you know, was just something, you know, that was kind of the, the water that I swam in as a young boy. And it just piqued my interest. And, um, you know, I could, you know, as I got older in high school, um, you know, I began to be able to see how critical uh, prices were to my family's livelihood. Mm -hmm. So that was natural. I also had uh, some of it is just serendipitous timing that when I was in the middle of high school was coincided with the great commodity price spike of 1973-74. Much bigger in real terms than the current price movements. They were just um, jarringly large price increases. And this, this, this made, you know, price movements, you know, super interesting. Always wondered, well, why did they go? Why did um, corn and soybean prices go so high? Uh, and then, you know, the question every farmer wants to know is, well, when are they going to go down so I can begin selling some of my expected production mm. for the future to take advantage of those high prices? That's the the real motivation for a farmer is how can I take advantage of these gyrations in prices? And so that's a long answer. No, it's perfect. Question, but that's, that's, and then uh, I went to college at Iowa State and found out that I studied um agriculture economics and there's different parts of that field and i continue to be fascinated by the futures markets and i got to make my first visit to chicago where the big futures markets are um located mm -hmm. and in those days i don't know maybe you might recall a brief scene from a movie like Ferris Bueller's Day Off from the 1980s or uh, Trading Places with Eddie Murphy mm -hmm. where they yeah. show pictures of the pits and mm -hmm. guys trading. Yeah. You know, there's a famous scene in Ferris Bueller where they're you know, <laughs> yeah, trying to do this. <laughs> and you know, it was just intoxicating. Yeah. <laughs> I'll bet. You know, today the markets are just servers, literally yeah. computer servers. And in those days, it was colorful. It was electric. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of intoxicating to see the markets. And that just hooked me. And so then when I went to graduate school at Purdue. I got a doctorate studying these markets. And then after I got out of Purdue, I got my first job at Ohio State. Um, working formally and teaching and studying about these markets. And then since 1997, I've been here at the University of Illinois, which is kind of ground zero in this world, uh, top place in the world to study agricultural commodity markets. And so I've been doing that for the last uh, uh, 25 years here. That's amazing. So that's a perfect intro into my next kind of phase of these questions. You know, a lot of people, um, you mentioned the markets. A lot of people are fascinated by the markets they think of the stock market the dow jones mm -hmm. uh the nasdaq all these things uh how you invest in your roth ira your 403b 401k whatever you want to call it they're fascinated by these financial systems um and that they think that that's the main thing that, that's going to affect them financially their their quality of life so on and so forth very little people talk about agriculture and how it affects their livelihood and that's i think also why i was so fascinated by this topic um especially in today's world right now uh with ukraine and russia because uh, it's, it's one of those backdoor kind of slap on the back of the head thing. If, if you're not aware of, it can really, really change your entire quality of life. The, uh, my quality of life, you know, the, the, the typical American quality of life. So, um, I'm trying to bridge that gap. I'm trying to show people the relationship between why they should care about agricultural economics as it affects their daily life. So can you kind of help me, uh, bridge mm -hmm. that in a way? 
Well, the simplest and shortest answer is everyone eats. <laughs> yeah. Literally, food, um, you know, the three basic needs of human beings are um, uh, food, shelter, and, yeah. and water. Are we talking about, about Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Well, I wasn't, but you know, yeah. you, know you die without food. Yeah, yeah. And the history of humanity until very recent times has been the struggle of uh, the constant specter of famine. Mm. Ooh, that's a good point. That we don't recognize that, you know, the, the, there's a reason why, and I'd argue it's a good thing that most, let me rephrase it, not surprising that most Americans don't have any idea the connection between agriculture and agriculture economics and food production to their daily lives. Mm. That is a luxury of our modern civilizations yep. that's very recent um, and is fundamentally the result of the application of the scientific revolution to agriculture in the last hundred years. Okay, so talk about that. Yeah, so a hundred years ago, this conversation would have been very, very different, even in the United States. Hmm. Um, you know, the United States has always been blessed with relatively plentiful food production um, because it's endowed with uh, huge, vast tracts of fertile land. Mm -hmm. and a moderate climate that is naturally um, suited to growing crops. So that, that's, that's our natural resource endowment that, you know, is fundamental to the success, long-term success yeah. of our society. But even in the United States, if you go back 100 years, there was vastly more hunger, probably very, I doubt there was, hardly any real starvation, um, but uh, more than people would realize. I remember my grandmother uh, telling me, uh, she wouldn't talk about it very much, but people that knew, and this was mainly for economic reasons, but she almost starved to death in the Great Depression. You know, mm -hmm. this was in 1936, 37. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's uh, not in my lifetime, but it was in my parents' lifetime. Yeah. Uh, so, and then particularly if you go back a hundred years, um, to all, but the really blessed places with the kind of natural endowments the United States had, the, there was constant, um, haunted by famine, hunger, and starvation. Mm -hmm. India, as an example, mass starvations. Uh, well into the 20th century. Hmm. And, you know, one of the untold and unappreciated miracles of modern life is what I just called the application of the scientific method to uh, production of food. Hmm. This um, really started in the 1920s and 1930s. And it uh, is a combination of really two things. Uh, one is genetics. Um, massive public and private investments were made um, in developed countries at the time, United States, Europe in particular, also in Russia, um, to breed higher yielding crops. That was also, if I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but antibiotics was a huge uh, uh, factor in that, correct? Because whenever you add antibiotics to plants and, and vegetables, they grow a lot bigger. Not antibiotics. That's animals. Oh, okay. Uh, this, is, this is fertilizer. Okay. okay. Particularly nitrogen fertilizer. The three main fertilizers that we use to grow crops today are nitrogen, uh, potash, and potassium. Okay. N, P, and K. Same stuff you put on your yard if you're fertilizing yeah. it. 
Yeah. Keep it green. So, you know, uh, it, it was a revolution in the application of modern genetics to breeding higher yielding, healthier plants. Mm. Uh, that's number one. Number two is um, widespread uh, heavy use of organic fertilizers to boost yields. Mm. And, uh, you know, this, this is the foundation now. Of what we're reaping today. Yeah. Most people today want to focus on uh, some of the negative effects of that scientific revolution. And that's fine to do. Mm -hmm. Um, Healthy balance. But not without understanding what it's done. And so um, one of my favorite persons in this broad story, Caleb, is a guy named Norman Borlaug uh, from my home state of Iowa. Hmm. He can be said to have saved more lives than any other human that's lived in history. Oh, wow. Uh, an estimate in the 1990s indicated that he had saved over a billion lives. What? For what? <laughs> Something called the Green Revolution that occurred uh, post-World War II. And he huh. was uh, a leader. Well, not leader. He led a massive international effort, but he was the real intellectual gen genius behind breeding uh, high-yielding varieties of wheat and rice that could be heavily fertilized and grown in uh, hotter climates like India, Indonesia, oh, wow. um, you know, around the the middle latitudes. Yeah, and uh, that's literally called the um, Green Revolution, and that is what lifted the vast number of humanity finally out of the constant um, hmm. worry about mass starvation and famine. That is and fascinating. It was, it, was, it was breeding of particular um, wheat and um, rice varieties and then getting it out to the farmers in those parts of the world and uh, encouraging them to use um, lots of fertilizer to increase yields. And that is why India no longer has starvation. That's so it's a long-winded answer to that's why you should care. Yeah. Because literally our civilization rests on kind of this behind the scenes, constantly humming, extremely well-oiled machine based on at the application of science to uh, crop and animal production. Um, and it's so successful that today, rather than starvation, the main health problem in the developed part of the world, but even in less developed worlds more and more, is not enough to eat, food to eat, it's too much. Mm. Obesity epidemic. Yeah, You know, there's all sorts of reasons for that yeah. so that's a long-winded uh i'll try to maybe be shorter in the future no, I, man i'm listening i'm listening if i if i feel like i need to jump in and cut you off whatever i will i will but dude this is a this is fascinating to me but so, that, so that's that's the foundation okay and if you do not have the foundation caleb people starve yeah it's you, you know i and so what happens is this is going on behind the scenes. You can go to the grocery store, get every, whatever you want. You can go to Whole Foods, you know, a mind boggling array of foods and uh -huh. particular ways they're produced, whatever your preference is for local or you don't care or it's GMO, non-GMO, all that stuff. <laughs> but, you know, you can get whatever you want almost year round, 24 seven. So that that brings up a good question. If we can do that here in America, and if we are such a well old old machine, why are there projections of um, possible food shortages with this war in Ukraine? 
great question. Perfect lead into where I was going, Caleb. Sweet. That only when this is a perfect example of what's performing this, what I really literally regard as a miraculous function in our societies where billions of people do not need to really worry about having enough to eat. And I'm, I'm, I don't want mean to imply that there isn't poverty and that there isn't hunger in the United States. There is, and, and it needs to be addressed. I'm just making a broad general statement that is true for literally billions and billions of people mm -hmm. on the planet. They don't have to give a second thought to what was humanity's main problem or yeah. all but this tiny, yeah, tiny you're, slice of you're comparing, Yeah, you're, compa you're comparing previous generations, uh, you know, pretty much from the, since the beginning of time. Since the beginning of time, food shortages has always been an issue, right? And so yeah. in our small 200 years that we're looking at window right now, that's what you're comparing it to. Compared to all it's other really times. It's really only the last 80 to 100 years okay. that we've solved it. So it's even that's shorter wild. than that. Okay. So now something like the Ukraine comes along and it's an event that is big enough to throw a wrench into that smooth running machine and bring into question whether everybody everywhere that is so used to having more than enough, whatever they want, Oh my gosh, maybe someplace, somewhere for the least fortunate that they no longer will have access to enough food to eat. That's what happens. And so you have uh, events like that, something that causes food price, raw commodity prices like corn, soybeans, wheat, um, and then associated products that use those as ingredients in the grocery store when you get that spike it's kind of like to me what's interesting why this kind of issue explodes is because we as human beings then are confronted with the reality of how sometimes thin or how quickly we could revert with mm. enough cataclysmic catastrophic events back to hunger and starvation that is an amazing I believe, point i believe that that is primal mm -hmm. in every human being enough to eat and so if we get events that you know, even indicate throwing this smooth running machine in the mm -hmm. background um, off kilter a bit. Yeah. Then you, then you hook into that yeah. primal fear of not enough to eat. Well, have you ever heard of that theory called terror management theory? No, nope, that's a new term to me. Okay, so this is it's what you're talking about. It's the idea of how we buffer ourselves from death. Um, or world-ending events or cataclysmic events, whether it be a tornado, hurricane, so on and so forth. And terror management theory is the idea that, you know, without, like, prior to us being so, like, right now, like, you and I both, uh, most people don't have to face death all the time, right? Like, we have a right. pretty big buffer of death. And that buffer, it can be our worldview, it can be our politics, it can be our religion, and then whenever, like, if this is death and this is our life right here, you know, whenever a cataclysmic event, like, say, starvation or the fear of starvation occurs, it brings those two right next to each other. And this is the, this is the attempt to interpret what that, how that occurs in every person's life. So it sounds Ooh, like that really could be what is happening now and what you're talking about, where people are, are, are bringing this to head. They're bringing this to their, their forefront because the fear of starvation and the fear of not having enough food quickly aligns themselves oh i could die <laughs> yeah, is, yeah no I, I i think you're absolutely right um you know and this one uh the ukraine crisis is also layers on top of that additional fear that's in the back of everybody's mind which is world war three and mm -hmm. nuclear uh nuclear exchanges and everything that goes with that you know i think that closes up there as well that's, that's a really interesting yeah. point so why do we 
Like, why are we so dependent upon Ukraine and Russia for their grain? I thought we had perfectly ample supply here. Very good question. That gets the, the practicalities. In the U.S., we do. Like I said, the U.S. is not going to have literally food shortages because we don't have enough quantity. Okay, that's not going to happen here because, uh, but the issue is that may not be true. So we're an exporter of a wide array of agricultural commodities. Mm -hmm. You know, um, we also import some things like tomatoes from Mexico and things like that. But, you know, we, we export dozens of agricultural commodities. So we produce so much that we have a surplus that uh, other parts of the world rely on to buy from us. Mm -hmm. So that's our basic situation. But uh, where this really is an impact is some of those buyers are in poor countries that may get priced out of the markets. So in other words, the real, the pro, what happens is the price for, say, corn, I'll just use wheat because that's mainly important in Ukraine. The price for wheat is set in a global market. Mm. So even though we have plenty to produce here and use, and we'll, ex, we'll continue exporting, uh, the price of wheat has skyrocketed because. Um, Nobody's farming, right? The war has put at risk um, a big producing area in the world. And if it's a global, if if the price of wheat, even here in the U.S., reflects global supply and demand, when there's a big problem somewhere else, just like in crude oil, Mm -hmm. you know, we're paying more gas, more for gas because of. The, the Ukrainian crisis and other things. So it works the same way in most commodity markets. Mm-hmm. And so if we, no matter how much we try, we can't, even though we're blessed with availability, we can't insulate ourselves from the price impacts of cr- crises like this. How much, so, uh, how much of Ukraine, do, I don't mean to cut you off, I want to keep going there, but how much of you do we export or import in Ukraine? Like how much is the producer of Ukraine in, in grain and wheat? Great question. From a production standpoint, people ask me this numerous times, how to how to frame it for an average person. And this is the way I do it. Um, may not work so well because you're in Texas, but uh, <laughs> um, in the Ukraine, they're in, for their big six crops that they produce, uh, so their main crops are winter wheat, corn, barley, sunflowers, I'm forgetting one more. Might How could you forget that one one? Come on, man. <laughs> soybeans. I think it's soybeans. Their total cropped area is about 60 million acres. Hmm. And so, well, that's a big number. What does that mean? That turns out to be almost exactly equal, Caleb, to the total crop area of Iowa and Illinois combined. It's only two states, though. <laughs> Right, but they're two huge producing states. Yeah. I mean, these are for um, crops. This is the heart of the production area. If you've ever driven through this part, if you've driven mm-hmm. north through Illinois or oh, east, yeah. west through Illinois and Iowa, you know, the corn and soybean fields seemingly go on forever. So how if the two states of those of America that are the highest yielding crops in the U.S., what other states pull their weight? Like, is are those two states the ninety percent of production of those uh, commodities? Oh, in the U.S. In the U.S., I'm trying to compare Uh, that to like Ukraine. Probably, I'd have to go look that up, but just off the top of my head, I think that they're about thirty percent of corn and soybean production. Okay, so all of Ukraine. 60 million acres is equivalent to roughly 30% of production in the U.S. of that same commodity. Yes. Okay. I'm, I'm trying to just gain perspective. Well, of the, their total area. And so that's their production base. So the war has put at risk what I say 
uh, an Illinois and Iowa sized hole in global grain supplies. Mm-hmm. That's a big hole yeah. by um, historical standards, potentially. Now, this has all got to play out. It's it's not all flushed yet, mm-hmm. uh, but day by day, it you know it's getting closer and closer to getting flushed. So, what what is the rough percentage of Ukraine's production worldwide in the worldwide market? Is it thirty percent, eighty percent of the? No, of the it's market? not even close to that. It's. Oh. Um, um, the big thing is not Ukraine's production, but their uh, involvement in um, world trade of uh, agricultural commodities. So Ukraine in particular is a very important wheat producer. Um, uh, gosh, I've thought, man, they're either the second or third largest um, wheat exporter in the world. Okay. Who's the first? Russia. Oh, so the, okay. It's now, on wheat and all, why is everybody talking about wheat? Yeah. Uh, okay. So um, that's that that's, makes that's, sense. You're you're talking about a third of the global exports of wheat mm. from the Ukraine and Russia. Hmm. And in particular, as you might imagine, because they're close to that, lots of countries in Africa and the Middle East rely heavily. You know, so where are those going? To um, less developed, poorer countries rely heavily on what's called the Black Sea region for wheat imports now. And this is probably the real fear from a global standpoint is that they could be priced out. Those countries could be priced out. Hmm. The governments can't offset the price increases. Uh, and so it leads to civil unrest in those kinds of countries. And so that's, you know, uh, it, it, it will be unpleasant and no one will like the food price inflation that this can lead to in a relative, a rich country like the U.S., but there's no reason why, um, and unless you're super poor, th- that you won't have enough to eat in, mm. the, in a place like the United States. But this is where the real specter of hunger uh, from this price spike and disruption of production and supplies uh, really comes home in the globe, country like uh, Egypt. Hmm. So how is that going to affect us for the most part? I mean, is there a way... I mean, I'm sure the U.S. is probably trying to do more of this, but, you know, globalism, there, there's a lot of interesting things about globalism. Um, it, the global markets, everything from how things are, are even spread virally, you know, with COVID. These things right. are, there's a lot of good things about globalism, but there's a lot of bad things about global markets as well. Um, is there a way to more diversify something like agriculture and wheat to where it doesn't affect the U.S. like it would, you know, 100, 200 years ago where global markets weren't so dependent on each other. <laughs> you, you know what I'm well, trying to say? Yeah. Well, there's really no way that a country, if 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 you want an open trading and the benefits of trade, mm-hmm. then you're going to have to live with price volatility like this. There, there, there's no way around it. The only way that you can insulate yourself is using a, a, a terrible word economists have invented called autarky. Hmm. And autarky is where you literally cl- think North Korea. North Korea oh. has an autarkic economy. They, yeah. they, they have a wall around their economy. Yeah. And that is the only way so that you build a wall. Funny phrase now. Do <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, uh, one of my favorite old TV shows is Arrested Development. I don't know if you're familiar yeah. with that or, or yeah. like that. But that was a whole theme there. Build a wall. Uh, <laughs> and, I love it. But you'd have to build a wall um, around the entire United States in a, a legal sense. And you wouldn't allow economic activity yeah. to occur outside of our borders. Which would cripple the economy. Because Yeah, I mean, the, yeah. The, I mean, we, we know that. But that's the... But yeah, that's an answer to my question. Have yeah. a hard time understanding 
that sometimes that's the way they would like it to be, but they don't realize how much poorer we'd be if yeah. you had that economy, you immediately grasp it. Yeah. And so um, if we're going to get the benefits of trade, you're going to have price falls. You can't. It's, it's just, yeah, it's just a, applying a cost benefit analysis. The costs, this is a cost. The benefits far outweigh the cost for for closing your borders and, and not doing free trade or not having trade with other countries. So if you apply right. the cost, and it's but, not saying that you can't have managed trade. That's another whole yeah, issue. Yeah. But, but, but in this food conversation, you know, I think that's a, a, a really important point. But when you get in these kind of price spikes, it's far better to be a producer, you know, have a surplus, mm-hmm. even if it's more expensive, than to be an importing country that has yeah. much higher cost and potentially limited availability. Are there secondary or maybe tertiary effects to other third world countries getting priced out that'll affect America? Oh, yeah, that's more, you know, dealing then with political instability. So, for example, you mentioned earlier that the issue with two thirds of the, or you said two thirds of the uh, wheat production is in Russian Ukraine. Is that right? A third, not a, third. a production, but of of exports on exports. the world market. Okay. So one of the issues you said is that a lot of the, these other uh, poorer countries can get priced out. Well, we do trade with countries everywhere. So if that occurs, if other, if these other countries are getting priced out, are we going to see some other effects from those things occurring? Right. Well, that will mean that our exports of wheat, and we the U.S. exports a lot of wheat, mm-hmm. um, will become more valuable. Okay. And uh, but this is where the problem comes in: as as prices rise and the cost of buying, you know, we have a lot of rich buyers of our wheat too, like mm-hmm. um, uh, Japan and China. Um, you know, other countries that buy our wheat. Um, you know, they'll just grit their teeth and pay more uh, to maintain their diets. Well, the ability to grit your teeth and pay more is far more limited in a country like Egypt. Here's an example. Um, there's, there's, I think, good research showing, are you familiar with the Arab Spring in mm-hmm. 2011? Yep. Well, that definitely had it, some of its seeds, uh, pun intended, uh, in, the, in a huge price spike in 2007-2008, the last time uh, wheat and grain prices spiked to these levels. Yeah. And there was the exact same kind of cycle of spiking prices, less availability, and then civil unrest in Northern Africa, where the diets are heavily wheat dependent, yeah, you know, and um, so we do have a very recent example of how, I mean, human beings do not uh, put up with um, food, you know, real food insecurity and hunger very, very well, and for good mm-hmm. reasons. Yeah. No, you quickly you get people in the streets yeah. faster than almost anything else. Does this and, have the uh, potential to kind of thrust America upward in the global systems of, of agriculture? Because you essentially become one of the more primary exporters of wheat whenever you have a third of the people kind of with Ukraine and Russia kind of out of it. And you're talking about how prices are going to go up. That means uh, America is going to be doing probably more dealing of wheat because they're going to be one of the more, more primary exporters. Does that have the potential to thrust America even higher into the global markets? Well, uh, I, I don't know if I would use the word higher. Um, it does mean that American farmers are in a really nice period of prosperity, which they like. Um, uh, here's here's a, a, a little insider tip for you, Caleb. Hey, hang on, let me shut my door. The dogs are barking. Oh, okay. So, Sorry about that. No problem. Uh, in, insider issue. Um, when prices are low and farmers' incomes are get, getting squeezed, you'll hear a lot of complaining from them. 
you'll know they're doing well when they're quiet. <laughs> so are they quiet right now? Very quiet. Interesting. Okay. And so 2021 was a record year for incomes in uh, for Illinois grain farmers, as an really? example. What? Yes, record. And you see it in record increases in farmland prices right now here in the, everywhere in the Midwest. Mm. It's like the Wild West and uh, farmers trying to outbid each other for farmland right now because interesting. profits are so good. So that's the main impact huh. in America is uh, a bit higher food bills for consumers and uh, high profits for farmers and uh, uh, skyrocketing land prices. So you're really not seeing anything past higher prices and, that, and that's kind of your expert opinion. Yeah, no, no, I, 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 here in the U.S., no. And, you know, farmers are very competitive. And even if this takes even worse turns in Ukraine, uh, and that war stretches on for years, there's enough land around in the world that give us a few years and we'll take Ukraine and Russia out of the equation. That's interesting. I like that's. I don't know if I like that, but it's just, it is interesting to see that perspective. And I, I think a lot of people are fearful of famine. Like we talked about, you know, it's, if famine occurs and our, our prices go crazy high, are we going to be able to afford food? I know my food bill has gone up like 50 bucks every week. Um, that's, that's a lot. It, it adds up. Um, I guess one of my other questions is as we, as we wrap up, you know, we're seeing a lot of dystopian kind of predictions for our future here in America. Mm -hmm. Most people think that America is on the decline. Uh, we're seeing infertility rates drop to zero roughly by 2040. Uh, one of the, one prediction that MIT, I'm sure you've heard of this, but MIT predicted in the 1970s that uh, economic collapse worldwide would occur roughly in the 2040s. So if you have in the 2040s, you have economic collapse, you have infertility, the fear of famine, a possible World War III happening at the end of 2020s or not the end, but now, um, what does this mean? Like in your expert okay. opinion, as an agricultural expert, what is this looking like for you? Um, are, are we, is there hope for the future for America? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we have to admit that there are catastrophic black swan type risks out there. You know, we're the closest to a nuclear threshold, uh, I believe, that we've been since the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah. Do you think that this current crisis is worse than the Cuban Missile Crisis, or was that worse than this? That was worse. Yeah. I, I wasn't alive then, so I, I don't know. If you read the history of that, you it, it might make you uh, uh, a, a religious person <laughs> about how providential it was we got out yeah. of that without a nuclear war yeah. um, i mean so close so many events could have spiraled so easily out of control um that like i said it can make you a a a, a person of faith uh, looking at these facts how fortunate we were but yeah. so that i, I want to admit that that kind of risk is out there yeah. Uh, so I don't want to come across as a Pollyanna-ish person, but I still believe uh, that the dystopian predictions are going to be proven to be well off the mark like they have in the past. Mm -hmm. You know, when I got so interested in the markets, Caleb, in the 1970s, um, there was a popular book, I can't remember, a population explosion, um, basically a, you know, a prediction that everybody's going to starve by 2000 because of a population explosion and land degradation and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we've kind of repeating uh, that cycle right now, uh, led by climate change. And I'm a believer that climate change is real. Uh, I just don't think, I think that the timing and severity of those effects have gotten really exaggerated in my opinion hmm. so you know what i've seen is you know what we've learned if we will stick with it largely um 
if you allow economic incentives to do their job, we will keep getting richer hmm. and we will not have a dystopian future. You know, things that we don't think we can figure out, uh, like cleaner energy, um, uh, food production. We, I, I mean, I, I don't want to come across as a person who believes technology solves everything, mm -hmm. but if you read history, we've the progress we've made is just yeah. mind-boggling. Oh yeah, and that doesn't happen by accident. It happens by uh, having the incentives, property rights, education, you know, uh, a system that uh, wants to incentivize that kind of economic progress. And if we stick with that, um, I think that we'll be better off than a lot of people can imagine mm. today. And so to me, that's an important message from somebody who's a uh, an older boomer. So to, to you millennials and Gen Xers is unfortunately, I think your generation is just swimming in dystopian thinking <laughs> when our, uh, when history says you can't ignore some of the risks that we face. Mm -hmm. But I think that those are grossly overstated relative to the likely outcome. Why do you think that we are like this is such on the forefront of our minds? Well, that's a really good question. It's beyond the ability of an economist to answer. So I'm just kind of personal opinion. Yeah, this is just pure personal opinion. Well, Human beings are funny. You know, we like to think we're super rational, you know, that, that you know, uh, we're logical and we think. But there's another side of us that likes to scare ourselves. And, and there always seems to be something that hu catches human beings as, as a group that um, we kind of herd, and we go in a herd to something really scary. Hmm. And, you talking know, like, not, are you talking about like groupthink? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, kind of, yeah, really negative groupthink. Hmm. Um, and again, I'm not attacking the environmental movement per se or climate activism, but my personal view is that, well, the, all of that is useful. I believe that it has taken on a doomsday narrative or theme that is not justified. Hmm. And That's interesting. I, I believe that particularly for people your age, you know, like I read about people not having babies because of climate change fears. Yeah, I know. <laughs> this seems insane to me. Yeah, there's based a... on the scientific evidence as I read it. Are you on TikTok? So, what? Are you on TikTok? I am not, but you I see a surprising number of TikTok videos because I have a 16-year-old son who <laughs> sends me something every day. <laughs> well, I uh I did a video on this very topic on infertility and it went I think it's got like 250,000 views on it right now. Thousands of comments about people saying this exact same thing about I'm not having kids because of climate change or like I it was originally on the on the handmaid's tale which was basically how a new government was going to be forced into America and they're going to make handmaids out of the fertile women and the comments on there are are interesting to say the least um I'm just showing evidence of how infertility could be a thing but the but you're you're absolutely right I, I don't think people should stop having babies because of climate change or the fear of infertility or the fear of a dystopian future. Um, kids are a blessing. Like I have two of them and I, I don't. Well, that's great. I'm glad to hear that. I have four. They range in age from 16 to 37. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. but you know, so that to me, that really bothers me. Uh, those kind of decisions yeah. because unfortunately that's irreversible. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe in a few years if things are better, people can do that, but but, you know, we just know biology puts a uh, 
fairly limited window. The clock always ticks. Um, yeah. Emails. And so you put that off for 10 or 15 years, you may miss your chance for, you know, entire cohorts of, of young people will be childless and they'll be, um, you know, that, that they, they may face a, 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 a much more bleak future than they think. Um, yeah. So, you know, but if you ask me, the one thing that I'm most concerned about if, as we're ending our time mm -hmm. is the uh, infertility crisis. Yeah. More than anything else, uh, that worries me about the future. Yep. Um, uh, we're seeing a population decline year over year. We're seeing it, you know, decrease every per percentage. And then you, as soon as the boomer generation, honestly, frankly, dies off, we're going to be left in a very interesting position with very little babies being born, the older generation gone. And, and, and I don't know, the, the predictions are dystopian. I will say that. They are no, dystopian. I mean, I, you know, but societies can also have, you know, one thing that I would say I've learned is, there's very little in life and in markets and in government and in society that is a straight line. And that is all of our projections projections are straight line. Hmm. That's very, I like that perspective. That's very good. And that, that perspective I'm sure came from a, a lot of years of thinking <laughs> and wisdom. Well, right, and just, just watching yeah. and how, you know, I've learned how often I'm wrong, how frequently and on an epic scale. Uh, <laughs> That's awesome. I like and, that. That's rare. And, and it, you know, it's just the truth. And I tell people, what's, you know, people ask me, gosh, you're spending your whole life studying, you know, agricultural commodity markets. What's the most important thing you've learned? Be humble. <laughs> We're always wrong. Yeah. And, you know, so uh, that's, uh, that's, well, that's, that's the one thing that bothers me. And I hope uh, you know, hope and pray that that can get turned around because yeah. we are, if nothing does change, you know, vast swaths of the earth are going to depopulate in a way in 50 or a hundred years. That's kind of unimaginable. Mm. Hmm. Well, Dr. Irwin, you have brought some amazing insights into a lot of questions I had today. Truly was an honor to be have this conversation with you. And I, I value your opinion. You have some very cool opinions um, and very interesting perspectives. So thank you so much. Yeah, it was my pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation, Caleb. And at some point in the future, if you're really bored, we might uh, talk again. Oh, heck yeah. I was actually going to ask you about that. So that's perfect. So thank you so much. No, I would, yeah, this was a great conversation. At some point in the future, let's do it again. Heck yeah. Have a good day, Dr. Irwin. Hey, you too. Um, and uh, warm. It's, I hope it's warmer there than it is here. It's. I mean, it's like 80 degrees right now, so it's not bad. No, no I don't want to hear that. <laughs> All right, bye. Bye-bye.